Now I'm really pleased to introduce tonight's moderator, Ms. Leslie Wilcox. Leslie Wilcox, as you know, is the host of Long Story Short on PBS, offering engaging Akamai one-on-one conversations with some of Hawaii's most intriguing people. Leslie brings out the personal stories, revealing experiences, and core values that mold the people who shape your community. Please give a warm welcome to Leslie Wilcox. Thank you all so much for being here. Has, has everyone been to Kaka'ako Agora before? Is this new to you? And Inside Park, Public Square. Well, I'm so glad to be here with these smart and thoughtful guests. Let's consider it a conversation with some people who have richly textured lives, shall we? So I don't, I don't have a big opening statement to ask you for. I don't have a long list of scripted questions. We're just going to talk. And afterward, Q&A, as you were told before. So with me here, Guy Kawasaki, who... <laughs> who only has 1.46 million Twitter followers. Uh, he's a marketing executive, a social media guru, uh, author, art of social media, and many other books. Uh, born in Kalihi Valley, went to Iolani, and then off to Ivy League schools, and now lives in Northern California. Thank, Thank you for you. being here, Guy. Thank you, my pleasure. Maya Satoro Ng, I should say Dr. Maya Satoro Ng. She's a, she's a director at the Matsunaga Institute of Peace and Conflict Resolution at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. She director of Community Outreach and Global Learning, but not the big, big director. Okay. <laughs> and she, um, she's an author. She, she's taught at many high schools in New York and Hawaii. She was born in Jakarta, Indonesia. She's the half-sister of the President of the United States who was indeed born in Hawaii. <laughs> Next, Daniel J. Kim. He is an actor in the hit television series, Hawaii Five-0, which is shooting somewhere on the island tomorrow. Uh, before that, there was the hit series, Lost. He's, he's very versatile in the television industry and, and in acting. He, uh, he's a director and most recently a producer. Born in South Korea, grew up in New York and Pennsylvania, now lives most of the time in Hawaii, but you spent time in LA and New York as well. We're very happy to have you here today. Good to be here. Corbett Kalama, who was born to a very large family in a very small house in Kailua. <laughs> He is a retired top banker, First Hawaiian Bank, former uh, retired executive vice president, uh, is now the vice president of the Harry and Jeanette Weinberg Foundation, and is heavily, heavily involved in leadership in community uh, affairs in Hawaii uh, from the standpoint of both leader and also, I think, I, could I say servant? You, you know, he's a, he follows the model of servant leader. So we're very happy to have Corbett here today. So, you know, let's do this really simply. You know the question of the moment, and we know that Hawaii is the most racially diverse state in the nation. We're the most isolated landmass in the world, 
And I think Time Magazine said once, uh, pe- good thing people do get along pretty well because it's hard to get out of here. We want to ask you, anybody want to wade in on the subject of how, what can Hawaii teach America about race? Go, Maya. Go. <laughs> okay, I'll go. I'll start. I think that uh, Hawaii can teach America a lot about race. And, you know, I say that with certain caveats. We still have room to grow. Last night I was at the East-West Center Gala. We were honoring Nainoa Thompson, and he was talking about how the East-West Center was, uh, was going to uh, find its island. And there was this um, idea that, you know, as you know, navigators, we are all... Um, kind of still passionate and committed to the search. And so this idea that um, Hawaii, uh, just like the rest of the nation, has room to grow, I think is something that we should be thinking about as we're here today. But I want to just say that I'm really happy that we're having these dialogues, and I'm grateful to uh, Zokalo, I'm also grateful to the DKI Institute, and this is something that I want um, my students, my, my children, to be able to do on a regular basis to think about naming themselves and, and their place in their community uh, and having these dialogues and reflections are a great opportunity to do that. And definitely I'm happy that my daughters are growing up in Hawaii where um, I think we all know that uh, people of every uh, racial and ethnic background have contributed substantially to making uh, relatively harmonious and peaceful and well-functioning and and uh, fun community. Um, I think that um, my husband, I don't know if he's here, but... There he is, he's in the backyard. Hey, hey, Conrad, he works for the Smithsonian. He's the director of the Smithsonian Asian Pacific American Center. I'm so proud of you. But um, when he was growing up, he didn't grow up with the same level of diversity and sort of normalized... um, um, multiculturalism and multilingualism and intermarriage and mixedness and you know he told me uh, and I hope it's okay that I share this but he was pushed down on his bike uh, one day and people um, kind of uh, chased after him and were very intimidating and said stuff like oh me Chinese me make joke me go pee pee in your coke you know and it was not funny it was harmful and hurtful and and those are things that I know that our daughters will never ever Face, really. Uh, Savita and Suhela are in a place where um, they have access to a lot of people uh, who will embrace them. Um, not simply um, because there are a lot of mixed race people, but because um, there is, I think, a strong sense of community. And I think about Hawaii, one of the positive things is also that we have a strong connection to tradition. People do a pretty good job of doing the Bon Festival and the... I think you're probably winding me up. I'm taking too long. (laughs) But, um, you know, the um, Makahiki and, you know, the Okinawan Festival, all of these things that kind of, um, in addition to the farms and the lo'i, you know, the taro, uh, the fish ponds and and, uh, these wonderful places of indigenous reforestation remind us where we come from, where we've been, but also allow us to explore new generations of um, meaning-making through tradition. I notice when I ask people, you know, what what are you? Because we ask that in Hawaii, right? You don't do that on the mainland, but you ask it in Hawaii. They say local. Uh, Often it's the shared part of the culture. Anybody else want to... You know, for me, um, 
Growing up in Hawaii, I'm Hawaiian, Chinese, Portuguese, English, Danish. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm local, you know, I'm a poi dog when you look at it. Uh, you know, I grew up in a, in a family of 11 kids, a um, 900 square foot home, but it was a very rich time. And I think as I was preparing, driving in today, and I was thinking about the potential questions that we'd ask, and we talk about racial diversity and what Hawaii can teach race, teach about race. And when you look at it, racial diversity is so rich. As I reflected on growing up in Hawaii, just I grew up right near Buzz's Steakhouse. From Buzz's Steakhouse in that quarter mile stretch, there were 60 families. And just to give you a sense of the racial diversity, we had the Gonzalez family, the Williams, the Hobbs, the Lampitox, the Orgelis, the Kamai, the Kims, the Akakas, the Silvas, the Espositos, the Granbergs. And you had that great mixture. As, and we grew up around that. And you see such a richness. There was a, a great deal of embracement. And we talk about in Hawaii a lot about aloha. And when you look at it, Hawaii's um, feeling for aloha in all of us in here and the, the willingness to go ahead and include people and to be caring and to be kind and to be willing to humble oneself to serve. It, it's a message that's so universal, but we all get to experience it. And, you know, growing up with the, being exposed to the various cultures, my grandmother on my dad's side was pure Portuguese. So I learned all the Portuguese language part about that. And the ladies would come down and sit in the veranda and we'd learn about that. But when I went to visit my Hawaiian grandmother, there was no veranda, there was a lanai, right? And you go through and you, you learn these different things and you see the similarities and you see uh, the appreciation that one had for each of the cultures. And so there's such a richness here and diversity is so important to teaching the people about race. Daniel? Well, uh, you know, the only thing, I mean, I, I guess I could start off by saying one of the things that Hawaii has to teach the rest of the country about race is reflected in the audience here today. Yeah. If you look around, I mean, if you look around and see yourselves the way we could, uh, you know, you see almost every race represented in the audience tonight. And we're here talking and celebrating diversity as opposed to uh, in, in, in a meeting about crisis or anguish, like so, so much of the rest of the country. As, as someone who was, is not, wasn't born on the islands uh, and someone who had lived uh, most of his life on the mainland with a very, very different attitude and upbringing toward race, it is one of the most refreshing things about living here is that there is an awareness of race, but not a judgment about race. And th that's a critical dis uh, uh, distinction in my mind. Uh, you know, one of my favorite stories when it comes to race and my family uh, is, uh, is one that I've shared before, but uh, I'll share with you now. Um, you know, I grew up in a steel town uh, 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 in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, where uh, the majority of the population uh, had a last name that ended in ski or wits. <laughs> Uh, so it was like big blue collar, everyone was burly, you know, you worked for the steel. And so being the only Asian family in that town led to a lot of experiences like uh, Maya was saying that Conrad had. I was singled out on a regular basis for how I looked. Uh, the word chink for me was something that I heard um, as soon as I heard the word love or hate. I mean, it was part of my vocabulary very early on. Uh, now, when we moved to Hawaii, my son was 13 years old. He came up to me one day and he said, Daddy, what's a chink? And I thought, okay, that's pretty good. He's 13 years old. He, I heard it when I was five. He's doing pretty good. So, so I took a deep breath and then I sat down with him and I prepared to have that talk about, well, you know, you've got to understand that some people will criticize you based on how you look. And, and I was thinking, I was preparing the entire speech and so my first question was, well, who called you that? And he said, nobody. I read it in a book. 
and, and to me, that, that sums up Hawaii to me, that he yeah. can go that long, you know, and have, uh, and live in, in harmony with so many different races and it never come up that, you know, that, that racial epithet in that way is, uh, told me how progressive this culture really is. And it made me really, really glad to, uh, to be able to raise my family here. I consider it a privilege because it is to me, the most racially harmonious place where you can live and still speak English as your first language. <laughs> Thank you, Daniel. You know, Guy, you've lived more time away from Hawaii than in Hawaii. Yes. What are your thoughts? I think what everybody's saying, basically, is that Hawaii can offer a lesson that it can work. That, you know, by default, we don't have to have these issues. That there is an example, maybe the only example, uh, but at least there is an example that it can work. Uh, the second thing I think Hawaii can teach is uh, a matter of perspective that when I went to the mainland, uh, I think if you come from Hawaii and you go to the mainland, you have a very different perspective because you're so used to the situation where everybody is so different. And I'll, I'll tell you a story, almost as good as Daniel's, uh, so I was living with my wife in San Francisco on Union Street, and uh, right where Union Street dead ends into the Presidio. So it's a very nice area. It's kind of the Wailai Kahala uh, of San Francisco. And so one day I was outside and I was trimming the hedge. And, th <laughs> and this older white woman comes up to me and says, you are doing such a great job with the hedge. Do you also do lawns? <laughs> and I was all set to just go off on her that, you know, how dare you? You think just because I'm Japanese, I must be a gardener. And about that time, my father visited me. And my father, I'm, I'm Sansei, he's Nisei. I told him the story and I fully expected him to say, how dare that white woman stereotype you and pigeonhole you as a gardener just because you're Japanese? And to my utter surprise, he said, son, mathematically, she was probably right. <laughs> so, so don't take it personally and get over it. And that was a fundamental story in my life. A second story, a few years later, I interviewed Condoleezza Rice, and she grew up in Bull Durham, Alabama, you know, where there are fire-hosing black people, and Ku Klux Klan, just the worst case, Alabama. And she said, you know, guy, I grew up in these terrible conditions of prejudice, violence, and all that, but I never considered myself a victim. And she went on to explain that if you consider yourself a victim, then it changes your entire perspective. That all of a sudden, it's not your fault. And all of a sudden, you can't do anything about it. And all of a sudden, you know, there's all these excuses. So, so once you accept the victim perspective, you become a victim. And those two stories fundamentally changed my life. Okay, we're giving Hawaii very good reviews on racial attitudes. Uh, we're not perfect, right? We're, we are not a racial paradise, I believe. Can we talk about that too? I mean, we can yeah. teach America about race, but we might be able to teach them by examples that aren't flattering as well. Well, I, I'll give an example. I think my wife is English-German, 
she's 5'10", she's a swimmer, blonde hair, and it's not unusual here in Hawaii still. And it's a, it's a matter of education and to Guy's point, how we respond to it. To always look to see, well, maybe this individual was raised in an environment that fostered perspective. It's not unusual for my wife and I to go to one of our supermarkets and have me standing right there with her, walk up after the groceries have been put and run through the uh, counter to have the person at the register ask me, are you together? That's happened a number of times. You know, we've got wedding rings on and everything. But that, so you, you look at that and you just, I chuckle nowadays. I don't get, I, I'm like Guy. Um, I, my initial reaction, burning on the inside. And I just, I've learned over the time that you just, you've got to educate people and you come through and say, oh no, we're married. Aren't I fortunate, you know? I, you, you play with it. But it's something that still exists and I think it, it's something that we have to um, take a step back often. Growing up in Hawaii, you learn to be patient. You have to be patient. And we recognize we're such a, a huge diversity of people and influenced by so many different factors as we were growing up in different places, some more affluent than others. Because many people that have grown up in Hawaii, to point it out that it grew up in a very affluent part of Hawaii, had that same impact on, on me when I was a child. It wasn't only visiting the mainland states and different things. That happened right here where I grew up in Kailua. And I won't point out the place, but there are different places within Kailua that there are areas that were just really poor, and there are other areas that were very, very affluent. And so you see that. So it's a constant reminder that we've got to continue to educate one to, and Aloha tells us to do that, to, to care for people, to be sensitive, and to be, to, but recognize that it's still there. And it's not something that goes away. And I think when you look at Hawaii and what, what you look at some of the root causes, there have been issues with respect to um, economic status, economic availability, financial viability, and that type of thing, which tends to manifest itself. The easy thing is to go back to, as Guy said, to say it's because of my ethnicity. And my father, too, raised us never to see it as a blessing. See your ethnicity, see your ethnic mix as a, as a blessing, but never use it as a reason for not stepping ahead. So. Can I tell you a funny story that I don't know if supports or hurts what I just said and what I just heard, but just to give you just sort of slice of life. So um, in my role as a venture capitalist and a business person, I, I meet with many entrepreneurs. And entrepreneurs also have to pitch investors to invest in their company. So one day, I meet with this black entrepreneur. And it's about 11 o'clock in the morning. And he says, Guy, I, I just pitched a venture capitalist. I'm about to pitch another one in the afternoon. Do you have any tips for me about how to improve my pitch? So I said to him, is your background black? And he says, yeah, you know, I grew up in Atlanta, I am black. I said, no, I meant the color of your PowerPoint background is it black. <laughs> so, I don't know what that has to do with anything, but, you know, it's a great story, right? Oh. Don't be sensitive. I, um, I'm going to be thinking about that one for a while, but... In my university setting, we have lots of opportunities for dialogue and structured academic controversies. And so, for me, I definitely want to emphasize that it's really important that we don't get complacent and that, you know, the thing about um, having relative harmony and living in a wonderful place um, is that sometimes a couple of things happen. One is we look at um, uh, ethnicity, we make, you know, there's ethnic humor, you saw Frank DeLima, and we, uh, we make... Um, uh, assumptions that, that this is okay when in fact uh, it can be hurting young people 
impacting the way that they think of themselves, their communities. And so we do often need to compensate with strength-based approaches to culture, making sure that we understand, you know, each um, uh, child's, you know, mana and place, and that they have a, a space to vocalize, express, to, and to engage in meaningful dialogue safely. And I, I do think that sometimes we are also a little bit afraid of confrontation and discomfort uh, here in Hawaii because, you know, I, I, and I get it because I, you know, I, everyone is my auntie or I've actually become old enough and I'm their auntie now, <laughs> which is a little bit of a drag, but I'm going to embrace it, you know. But I do think that, uh, you know, because we, we, we don't want to, um, we don't want to harm, do any harm to the, you know, to this sense of ohana and family and community. Sometimes we um, are uh, conflict adverse, but discomfort is really important to help us kind of, again, find our island. And Inouye himself, I'm thinking about, you know, the Inouye um, Institute, he was all about social justice, you know, and so we definitely need to, at the same time, and we can do it with love and, and, and uh, positive energy and optimism, but we need to uncover sort of some of the inequalities and the social justice issues that we can be working on a little more effectively here because there are racial and ethnic uh, components to, uh, to those inequalities. Thank you, Maya. Uh, Corbett mentioned this in terms of marriage. Three of you have interracial marriages and... Uh, well, interracial marriages and multiracial children. And I think maybe that may be one of the areas where there's some lingering, you know, because I, I, it's so family, right? I can remember one of my best friends, a Japanese-Korean wedding, lots of reverberations about that. And that wouldn't be a factor on, on the continent, right? I, you know, two Asians. But here, that could be a factor. Oh, I was I thinking think, about... I think you need the table with the... Oh, oh, yeah, right. I need to the table. <laughs> Moving all this stuff. stuff. That's right. Uh, <laughs> you know, I was thinking about that question, uh, you know, this afternoon as I was kind of pondering the panel a little bit. And I think one of the distinctions that Hawaii has is that, you know, uh, they were so, uh, Hawaii, the Hawaiian population was integrated so early on. And, uh, you know, we had the Japanese and the Chinese coming over in the 1800s and the Koreans coming up over in the, in the 1900s and then Portuguese and Filipinos coming around that time as well. And so uh, there was an integration at a level that, that didn't exist in the rest of the mainland. And I think that's really important. Also, those, those immigrants were coming in at a working class level. And so they were not coming in as upper class. They were not uh, colonizing the way that, uh, that, that, that Howley's, quote unquote, were, were seen as doing early on. And so there was a, I, it seems to me that there was a little bit of we are all the same right off the bat. And when Hawaii became a state, what's interesting is that all the quote-unquote minority populations were already established. And so it really did represent a population that was integrated, and it was represented by two senators, Senator Inouye being the most notable, that was there from the beginning, and you had your first Asian-American senator. So, you know, I think it makes a difference that the history of Hawaii's integration is so deep, and, and, and the way and the people that came and immigrated uh, had, had a serious effect on uh, the level of comfort that, that the different ethnicities have with one another here. And also, we didn't have enslavement, but we did have uh, colonialism. We did have plantation days, and there was definitely discrimination. People still talk about how, how the old days are, have a kind of a glow about them, but there are, there are also some 
evil memories coming out of plantation sure, days Portuguese as well. Portuguese exclusion, Chinese exclusion, the Japanese internments, they were all part of our history as well. That said, we still have the fewest hate crimes of any state, you know, 22 hate crimes since 2002, and that's, uh, you know, you can argue the methodology of that, but, uh, you know, that statistic does say something. I, I do think, though, part of the contributing factor is the, the fact that we've got these uh, numerous types of different diverse cultures that are here, and there's also an appreciation of the, of the different cultures and an opportunity for those cultures to continue to flourish. But people saw the similarities within each one of those cultures, and you saw that. And we were all taught through our life experiences to see the value in the person. Not necessarily what they did, but look at the person and not necessarily the color of their skin. One thing that I was reflecting on as Daniel was talking, I, was, I worked on the Financial Modernization Act bill with the senator in D.C. for years, and I remember being in a meeting in the Mayflower Hotel on Connecticut Street, and Walter Dodds, who's a mentor of mine, is sitting there with me, and this meeting's been going on for several days, and I sit there, and he comes up to me, and he whispers in my ear, Corbett, what do you notice? And I looked around, and I said, what, what are you talking about? He said, what do you see? I said, oh, people in suits. You know, and, and my, my actual uh, response to him, and he says, you're the only one of color in the room. And I realized at a very young age that I was never taught to see color. You know, you never, never think about that, and I was raised around that. And, and in Hawaii, I had my Portuguese fatseta auntie, right, Mrs. Pimentel, that everybody went to to get the stomachs fixed up and different things. And you had, you had this, but you saw the person all the time, and you, you were raised that way. That actually reminds me of a story as well. Um, I'm going to name drop for a second, but I don't think he'd mind. Um, I'm, I'm friendly with an actor named Jason Scott Lee, whom most of you know. And, uh, and when I first met him, it was in Los Angeles, and we were at an audition where they were looking for uh, Asian males only. And, you know, I, I, I was talking to him the way I usually talk to other Asian males in the audition room, because we all know each other, because we all audition for the same parts. <laughs> so we do the circuit together. You know, I was talking to Jason one day, and I was like, wow, isn't it crazy that, you know, there's... This particular audition had, you know, a, a diversity in ethnicity, and, and it was very surprising. And so I said, isn't it crazy that, you know, we've got, like, white people here and Latinos here and Asian people here? And he was like, I don't even see it. I'm like, you don't recognize it? He said, no, growing up in Hawaii, I learned nev I never see that kind of thing. And I just remember being so taken aback by that because... Uh, my upbringing had taught me to always be aware of the race politics of every room. And I thought how freeing it must be for Jason to just think of himself as an actor and to never think of himself as an Asian-American actor because he, race wasn't part of a chip on his shoulder to kind of succeed. He never felt marginalized or excluded because of the way he appeared. And I think that had a lot to do with his success as an actor up until today. He's He's one of the freest people that I know in that sense. And if we can kind of instill that in everyone, I, I think it would be an amazing attribute for, for not just actors, but for, for people. How do you teach people not to see color, though? It's very, very difficult because you can't escape your surroundings, you know. But, it, but it, it's nice to know that in a place like Hawaii, it's possible. It's not only possible, it happens. <laughs> so. Okay, I want to ask all of you about, you know, what was said for so many years, Hawaii is a melting pot. And I think, yeah, I see, I see heads shaking. What are we if we're not a melting pot? <laughs> I think we're a salad. <laughs> yeah. How so? I do. I think, you know, every ethnicity is represented as an ingredient in the salad. They're not mixed together. They're not blended together. They're not melted together. 
they are unique in their own characteristics. And, you know, to extend a terrible metaphor, maybe the dressing, the dressing is really, you know, our citizenship, our American citizenship. That is, that is what, that is what adds flavor to us all. And uh, it, it's kind of the, the final, it's kind of the final complement to uh, all, of the, all of the other ingredients. Anybody else? Because there will be a cooking uh, competition coming up, <laughs> and there'll be an attempt at a contest to represent Hawaii in terms of a dish. So you can check that out next door. Maybe we can find some culturally responsive metaphors like uh, bento box, chop suey. We got uh, we got some, we got to represent. Uh, but there is something ceremonial about food. You know, whether you're watching a pounding or in the you know noodle factories here but there is something um powerfully uh, emblematic in that i don't know that we've found our our, our metaphor yet but sal is pretty good i just we got to figure out we got it's a work the, in progress the wonton <laughs> chips on top or something yeah but i think definitely um there are um you you're asking like how do we teach people to not see color i don't i don't know that that we can do that, but I do think that uh, we can certainly, um, I mean, I, I do peace education, and so I have to believe that we can teach peace, and that's sort of part of it, where that's not the, the, the only um, point of connection and, and, and conversation. I think there, we need to look at peace as very action-oriented, and I wanted to point out to everyone that it is um, International Peace Week coming up, and International Peace Day, and if you go to... Um, uh, if you're able tomorrow at three, we are having a conversation uh, at the law school uh, hosted by the Matsunaga Institute of Peace, looking at COFA, um, the Compact Free Association, the Micronesian community here in Hawaii, and um, you know how uh, the Micronesian community is uh, is doing here in Hawaii and uh, in the nation. And there will be leaders from the community there and ongoing dialogue facilitated there. Um, we also, um, at the Matsunaga Institute, teach a lot of classes in negotiation, conflict resolution, mediation, facilitation, um, you know, the history of nonviolence and, and, and theory of... And, and I teach a peace education class, and a lot of what we do is we really understand um, how to see things from multiple perspectives. And I think here in Hawaii and around the nation, there needs to be perhaps a revisiting. Uh, and uh, there is, I think, still a very much a tendency to teach multicultural ed as though culture is bounded and finite and, and, and done and completely understood and very tidy. And instead of looking at... Um, you know, the collisions and the movement and the migration and the negotiations. And um, we do, instead of debate, structured academic controversies where you have to argue one side, then you argue the next. We foster empathy through learning to listen carefully. Teachers do think, pair, share normally, but we do think, pair, listen, share, where, you know, they have to listen to one another and then share with the whole group, be in charge of each other's stories. I think here in Hawaii, at a place of such powerful oral culture, there is an opportunity to uh, enliven those oral traditions and teach oral histories. We have a wonderful oral history uh, institute at the University of Hawaii, and these are places where uh, we can begin to contextualize some of the uh, race and ethnicity in, embedded in stories, you know, really understand the experience of folks in the plantations um, and Kanaka Maoli and, and Hawaiians and in a way that um, means that we can talk about race and these other things productively and lovingly, but 
would not depoliticize it, you know. And so there's lots of fun ways. You mentioned Kanaka Maoli. And let's talk about race and Hawaiians, because there is a very angry and deep-seated feeling going back. I mean, and we're talking about race, which is all about history and power and question of equality. In order to get along so well, you, you have to feel an equal stake, I think. And we're hearing from Hawaiians, we're looking at poverty rates and incarcer incarceration rates. Um, any thoughts about that? The, the first people in Hawaii. Corbett? I, I think it's just, again, back to my original premise that you've got to see value in people. You know, and it, it's on both ends. You look at the uh, Hawaiian community itself. They tend to occupy the lower end of the socioeconomic scale. You have examples of uh, Hawaiians within the various groups that have been able to pull themselves out, but there's still a, a huge responsibility, and that's a combination of factors that have, have impacted that. But my point about growing up, you know, my, my great-grandmother had 22 children, wow. right? My mom had 11. We had one of those smaller families, but the whole point, um, <laughs> they're deeply in love. One year apart, boy, girl, boy, girl, boy, girl. So, uh, no TV in those days, I guess, but... Uh, no, the whole point there is, that my point is when you start looking at that and you look at the hardship, I mean, that's a, a huge discussion. But when you talk about the, um, the diversity and the value and what, we, what Hawaii has to teach with respect to race, it's going to start, because even within those families, it starts one person at a time. Each one of us asking ourselves how we can care for the other, how do our actions impact those around us. I mean, that, that's the beginning part of it. I think in growing up in Hawaii, I experienced more of that type of approach to things, being concerned about community. And so, you know, as Daniel was talking, everybody's talking about that, and you start looking at families at a time, and, and I get back to my cultural appreciation piece. I've got, like I said, I'm Hawaiian, Chinese, Portuguese, English, Danish. My wife was German. So my children had, had to add German to their thing. Well, my son got married to an Indonesian Dutch girl. So my grandchildren are Hawaiian, Chinese, English, Danish, German, Indonesian, Dutch. But part of it is that the point I'm raising is that Acknowledging an appreciation in the diversity, acknowledging that it's important for them to understand that the world has changed and people are looking at these various groups and, and spending time as families and individuals because that's where the trust is to go ahead and start building a lot of this stuff. And the, uh, I'm not sure where you were going with that Hawaiian question because it's a very complex question. You know, it's a cumulative effect of that, but within that community there are efforts, very strong efforts, to pull people up. But as um, we've all recognized that Within life, you, you have choices to make. And sometimes life is not fair. It's one thing my father would talk about. Life is not fair, but you've got to put yourself in a position to take advantage of those opportunities. And there are people within our community. Daniel and I were talking earlier about some of my passions of doing work in the housing projects, for example. And one of the most moving things that ever happened to me in my life was from a, uh, four enlisted men from the military base taking four hours out of their day to adopt their neighborhood. And they took us away to the base and they just made us feel special. And what that told me was that my life had value. And that was enough for me to go ahead and take that jump. And that's why I say the solution is a very, um, may seem simplistic on my part, but very impactful. And so there are things that we can do as individuals to go ahead and move that, that meter. And it's happening. It's just uh, within the Hawaiian community, we see a lot of uh, discussion about the other things, and it's real. But there are steps that are being taken. There's so much cause for optimism on that front, I mean, and for, you know, really um, a lot of positive thinking, because I definitely see as an educator the work that's being done in the, in many of the charter schools, beginning with Ahapunanaleo, now just the number of publications in Hawaiian language, a, a reclamation, you know, so much has happened, and we see through that that, um, you know, cultures need not be lost or are forgotten or 
disempowered or disenfranchised permanently. There's much uh, stronger sense of ownership and fundamentally like pleasure and power that comes from being Hawaiian in the students that I see. They spend time in places like Ka'ala Farms, Ma'o Farms, Ho'olu Aina, where they do indigenous reforestation and they have a cultural component. Hawaiian practitioners through Lua and uh, Ho'oponopono and systems of restorative justice are working with uh, youth and giving options uh, so that correctional facilities for youth um, are you know, giving way to sort of more culturally based um, solutions. And you know, in these and other ways, there are choices now that are present that weren't there and certainly I wasn't aware of them. While we can teach America what it means to be American, I think a lot of Hawaiians here can uh, teach us uh, about the, the value and, and power of this place in, in ways that we can hear now, which is great. Maya, you mentioned earlier that um, because we have family connections and we all live together, sometimes there's, people are less likely to confront or be candid. And I just wonder if Guy feels that coming back from North, uh, North California, Bay Area, where you've made your home, when you, look, when you look at our culture here now, what do you say? Do you see that, that we, we tend to get along to get along? Um, no, I, I actually see melting pots slash salad. Uh, it, it really, it is a, a, a delightful society here. Uh, and I'm not an insider anymore. And it is different from the mainland. But on the other hand, I don't think the mainland is so heinous, right? I can honestly tell you, when I was first asked to be on this panel, uh, I told the person, you know, if you want me to go on this panel and say I had to overcome all this prejudice and I had to overcome all this racism to succeed in, in this, you know, white Silicon Valley, it's simply not true. Uh, I have never felt that being Japanese has held me back or has I've been punished, or I've been, you know, anything like that. Um, incompetent, maybe, but, you know, not Japanese. <laughs> and so, and I think a lot of that happened because of my upbringing. And the fact that, you know, for me, I travel all over the world, like, literally all over the world. And my observation is that people are more similar than they are different. And this can be in Istanbul, or Venezuela, or, you know, any place. And so I think one of the, the, the real action points is to get people to physically get to know each other, to you know, be in close proximity, and so that that can break their stereotypes. They can see that, you know, hmm, they're not that different. You know, they, they, want, they want to make a better life for their kids. They want to, you know, do that. Everybody's kind of the same. But if you are separate and if you're in your own little pipe, then you you ascribe characteristics to people because you don't know them. And I think that is the huge mistake. Um, you know, I think America should just welcome immigrants. Thank God we live in a country where people want to come to the country, not escape the country. And so I think we should let them all in. And, um, you know... And if Donald Trump wins, I am going to move to Australia. I, I just... We have five minutes before we open up for questions, so please be thinking of what you may want to ask. But before we do that, 
is there anything you'd like to say before, to make sure you get out, and this is the time, we've got five minutes of, <laughs> of time that you five can use. Five minutes each? No, five minutes total. So it has to be a short, sublime thought. <laughs> I would just say that, you know, we do the workshop Seeds of Peace, and I, I know some Seeds of Peace people are here. Uh, it's Seeds with a C, um, and it connects community, family, and um, schools together. And uh, please uh, ask yourselves, like, emerging from here, um, you know, the things that you can do with your... Um, with your children and the children in your life and community to help with the peace-building process. I see minds churning. I just say, you know, growing up in Hawaii is a very special opportunity for all of us, and we get to influence one's life. And um, I do work, I've done work in Ramallah, West Bank, and different places. And one thing, growing up here, and just like I talk about the, uh, the, the spirit of aloha, and being able to go into any community in my world travels, and to be able to go in there comfortably with confidence, because I'm going in there with the idea that I'm there to care about people, to serve people. And I'm going to be patient enough to take the time to understand it. I think as Maya was talking about the resurgence of Ahapunanaleo and that, that I, used, I was reflecting back on my friends that used to go to Japanese school, Japanese language school, and I used to say, poor thing, they got to go to school. You know, in retrospect, they were so fortunate. Because what, a lot of the resurgence to your, your question, your comment about the Hawaiian uh, uh, commentary now, is because of a rekindling and a re-understanding of, of, of our history. And understanding one's history allows you to go ahead and uh, be forthright, be confident, be strong as you go through. So, you know, growing up, but it also, for me, in my travels and the work that I do abroad in the, in the Middle East, it's allowed me to take this confidence and to see the similarities that people are, are there that, that are in need of, of people willing to serve, people willing to, to care for them. But that also stems from how I was treated by the 60 different families that were in our neighborhood all the different ethnicities. The one thing that they had that was consistent, they cared about me. And they had the right to discipline me and, and I had the responsibility of respecting them. And that's something that when we talk about race and diversity, that's what's consistent amongst all cultures and we've been able to experience that here in Hawaii. Anybody else? Daniel, Guy? Daniel, you go. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, it, you know, just uh, what Corbett and Guy were saying, it just reminds me of this, uh, of the importance of contextualizing uh, one's life, one's life. You know, the importance of travel, to understand other places so that you can understand the place where, you, where we live and remembering things like your history so, uh, so we don't do anything like repeat our mistakes. You know, those kinds of things uh, are, are what lead us to uh, get-togethers like tonight. And, you know, while we celebrate diversity here, uh, you know, I see this as just one step in a process of getting to a point where we all have an awareness of each other's races and we celebrate it instead of uh, judging or criticizing. You know, um, there, someone once said this to me and it stuck with me. They said, uh, exposure brings acceptance. Acceptance brings understanding. Understanding can bring love. And so, you know, we are somewhere on that spectrum. And I think repeated exposure to one another, living the way that we do here in Hawaii, uh, gives us a head start because we live together as neighbors and, and we are on the path to understanding and love. And that's someplace that is to kind of tie back to the whole thing, you know, what Hawaii can help teach America about race and ethnicity. So I, I have to say, Daniel, I love the idea that exposure is the key. Like, you are not just a pretty face. I mean, you are a smart guy. <laughs> I am. 
I am really impressed. You are a deep thinker, man. You are my kind of guy. Um, I have cue cards in the back there. Well, I I wish I had those cue cards. Uh, Obviously, I love that idea of exposure. Uh, I'm going to tell you one more story. And I, I like to hammer on the theme that it's about perspective and how you want to view the world half empty, half full, and how you want to, you know, turn lemon into lemonades or lemon into lemon. Uh, So my last story for you. So about 15 years ago, I was driving in Northern California on El Camino Real, which is the main drag. It's the, you know, the Kalakaua Avenue of Silicon Valley. And at the time, I had a Porsche 911. So I stop at this stoplight, and I look to my left, and I see this car with four white teenage girls. And they're laughing, and they're giggling, and they're making eye contact with me. So I think, guy, you have truly arrived, right? <laughs> like, just like Justin Bieber, anybody knows who you are. It's because of your work at Apple, you're writing, you're speaking, your books. You have truly arrived, guy. So one of the teenage girls makes this motion of rolling down your window. Obviously not a Porsche owner, because you press a button to put down window. But anyway, so I put down my window, and she leans out of the car in the next lane, and she says to me, are you Jackie Chan? <laughs> now, I could have gotten all bent out of shape. I could have said, not all Asians, we're not all slant eyes, we're not all the same. Okay, I could have got bent out of shape. But i tell you something. That day, I decided that one of my goals in life was that someday Jackie Chan would be driving his Rolls Royce or Bentley. In Hong Kong, he would look over, see these teenage girls giggling, smiling, making eye contact. Roll down your Rolls Royce window, Jackie. Puts down his window, and she says to him, Are you Guy Kawasaki? That's my last story. (laughs) Thank you. And now it's time for questions and answers. And I just had a question um, regarding... Uh, the current like institutionalized racism against last peoples to arrive Micronesians. Um, I wanted to know, you know, what your thoughts are on what could be done to further integrate them into our melting pot salad um, outside of the realms of academia. You know, these socio-politically conscious spaces, like outside of these protected spaces. You know what I mean? Because um, I work you know, in the community doing psychiatric social work and and therapy, and it's bad out there. You know, like, hospitals, schools, being out in people's homes, common areas like restaurants, like, it's getting increasingly increasingly worse, you know, the discrimination towards Micronesians, and so I just wanted to know your thoughts on that. Yeah, thank you for the question. I mean, I definitely think that a big part of it is Um, making sure that there are Micronesian leaders at the table. The Consul General is a good guy. We we did a Seeds of Peace workshop in Kealakehe Complex on Kona side, Hawaii Island, and um, there had been some strife there that was relatively well publicized, and so much happened there um, in the Micronesian community. Um, There was a a lot of understanding, uh, shared mural building, you know, a walk, conversations about how to impact public policy, um, you know, conversations about how to get on Obamacare, you know, all of these things uh, really do need to happen with Micronesians at the table. Um, So I think creating those spaces um, and I think that storytelling is just a really important part of building empathy. So 
telling more and more stories belonging to the Micronesian community and understanding the great variety and richness, um, but also the challenges of such linguistic diversity. So many languages, so many islands, and um, a lot of cultural distinctions make it very difficult to, um, to come to some kind of um, understanding and to build cultural bridges, but it definitely is possible. So I, again, just encourage you to um, start with the schools uh, and really making sure that you're pushing into the communities and you're inviting people out and then make sure that um, people like, um, you know, Joja and Kofakan and, you know, some of the other organizations that are working on advocacy are also thinking um, in, in empowering ways about how to increase the number of stories um, told and um, the number of, uh, and the, the representation here. Yeah, I, I do think within, I did a lot of work with the Micronesian community for years when I was going to school in Oregon and I still do work with them, is to having our community get a, a much more complete understanding that they're from different islands, have different cultures, and to also set a timeline and establish a timeline that's not our timeline, to recognize that where they start from, or they're starting at a different place than many of the people here, here in, uh, in Hawaii at this present time, and to be patient and to structure things and to develop a supportive structure around them to help them through those steps but to set it in a way that it's going to be beneficial to them to take care of their children. There, there's a, a way to do it. But I think sometimes some of the, the, the sense of urgency that's been created by the need to address some of these issues that we see that are real visible, we're just touching the edge of it. And so as, as Maya has been talking about, the peace conferences, gaining a greater understanding, and it's a responsibility for all of us to get to learn more about their cultures, their different people that they do come from different islands, that they're not all one and the same, because many of the solutions that are coming out are addressing it as one and the same. It's not one and the same. And so having that sensitivity, so it's, uh, there's a lot of work to do that we're all responsible for. Thank you very much for the talk tonight. Um, I do want to, uh, you know, I don't know how many of you have seen the film Aloha. It was a little controversial, but one of the best things about it is Bumpy Kanahel is wearing a shirt, and the shirt says... Hawaiian by blood, American by force. And so I do think that there is a, a conversation that we're sort of not having or speaking around, which is what is it, it's easy to say what does it mean to be local? You know, it is more difficult to say what does it mean to be an American in a place that has colonized Hawaii for over a century. And so when we talk about socioeconomic issues that are affecting Hawaiians, these are direct consequences of it. Even when we're think, talking about the Punanaleo and the language revitalization, all of these efforts are still being done within the context of, of a hopeful future nationhood. And, and I'll say that having worked for Senator Inouye, that he, as much as we're talking about multiculturalism, he would say that Native Hawaiians have a special status. I want to bring up this issue and delve a little bit more deeper into what I think is a more complicated issue than just the multicultural love fest that is here in Hawaii. Uh, well, with respect, that's a terrific question, because I do feel that, I do sense it, and I, I experienced it. I grew up, as I mentioned, we were on welfare, um, first to go to school, my father never graduated from school, a lot of, lot of uh, challenges growing up. Ate food out of rubbish cans, did the whole thing. 
hand-me-down clothes, never was able to qualify for Hawaiian homelands because we had too many kids, always worried about moving every week because we couldn't pay our rent. A lot of pain out there. One thing that my father and my mother and I was culturally, I was raised very powerfully. Auntie Iolani Luahini was my, my teacher. I was up in Mauna Ala when I was six years old. I learned to Oli. I did all of the cultural pieces. One of the things that um, I experienced though during that time that from all of my teachers was that you have a choice to make. And as all the, the different oppressive things that have gone on with respect to the Hawaiian community, not only committed by the different governments that came in, but committed by our own Ali. There, there's a full story to tell. We learn from that. We learn that what steps do we have, what power do we have within ourselves. First, it's education. There will be a time that I think there's going to be an opportunity for some type of um, independent status. There was an attempt by Senator Akaka to put together the Native Hawaiian Recognition Bill, and I worked on that first draft. I did the first draft with a, a group of people from the community. All the different community groups were there. Kalahui, Bumpy, the whole group was there at that time. Bumpy and I are classmates from high school. But it's just the, the efforts there, but the, the fact that we've got education as a, as a ticket for us to go ahead and now be at a plane where we have a Center for Hawaiian Studies that has been a very strong advocate. My niece is the attorney up on top of Mauna Kea. Camille with TMT, I'm in Israel, she sends me this picture of her up there with Aloha. My other nephew, Kanuha, is up there on the hill. I've met with uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Yang on that piece there, but had I not been educated and had I not been exposed through my Hawaiian language and Hawaiian culture, I would never have had that opportunity. And then on the, the other side, in addition to that, the fact that Senator Inouye was very instrumental in creating pathways where I would um, be able to go and, and sit with people to even show my views and share my views has been very opportunistic for me. So I agree with you. I feel the pain, and that's happening. But what you do see is you see a number of educated Hawaiians out there being able to sit at a table and talk about their history. One of the things that we talk about, not to go too long, and why history is so important, is what was lacking within our Hawaiian community to, to a large extent was the understanding of our own genealogies. So one of the things that's happening in all of our families is to teach genealogy, to teach what was going on in the world at that same time so that when you get involved in a discussion, you're informed as to what was going on in the world at that time so that we can go into a situation where people, there's a, there's a relationship of trust that goes on that the Hawaiian culture is an inclusive culture. It has always been. And how do we move the, um, the community to see the value? I, I've seen a great amount of change over time from when I was a child and in terms of accessibility and in terms of acceptance of the Hawaiian culture and Hawaiian music and uh, ancient music. So it's just a... We can co continue our conversation, but it's just it's a very passionate position for me. You've noted that this is a, a serious discussion that is a discussion all by itself as well. well I moved here with my family uh, eight years ago from Louisville, Kentucky. And uh, it was funny, when I moved here, um, everyone, because I was in elementary school at the time, everyone called me Kentucky. That was my nickname. No one called me by my name. And, but one thing I was struck with as soon as I got here was the... Um, that part of the reason for everyone's uh, inclusivity was that everyone was able to understand uh, our common humanity. Um, and so what I w my question to you would be is what role do you think uh, social media and other technologies will play in helping everyone, not just in the country but in the world, realize our common humanity? Guy, that sounds like a question yeah. for you if I've ever heard yeah. one. Set me up with a softball here. Uh, 
I, I, listen, I think social media is utterly fantastic. It's fast, it's free, it's ubiquitous. Nobody can tell you if you're a dog on the internet, much less, you know, what race you are. So I, I think it could break down a lot of barriers. Um, it's more or less a meritocracy about the quality of what you do on yeah. social media. And, you know, you really don't need to reveal your race, your, your color, your religious, your sexual orientation, anything. I mean, it's, all of that kind of disappears. And now, don't get me wrong, there's a lot of trolls, there's a lot of evil people, there's a lot of stupid people. I block them regularly. But I think it's a great empowering thing that it's yeah. utterly fantastic for marketing, for, you know, all this kind of stuff. Best thing. I, I, I can, I really, I have friends and people I know all over the world that I could not have possibly met and maintained a relationship were it not for the internet. There's no doubt in my mind. It expands your mind. My brother has some detractors and... Um, <laughs> Yeah. So one of them kind of found me um, on Facebook and said some not so nice things about um, our family. And, uh, um, you know, they were downright mean. And um, I um, followed her to her Facebook page. And it was a really important lesson to me, one that I share with my students, because while there were certain things that were expected, I mean, she was sort of a tea party person. Her icon was a um, woman, rather buxom, uh, wrapped in an American flag, toting a rifle. But I looked a little deeper, because she had hurt my feelings, and um, I saw next, like, uh, some pictures of her kissing up on some kittens, and, um, and uh, with her very beautiful grandchildren. And it was a, sort of a moment where I, I, it became impossible for me to completely demonize her. Am I fond of her? No. Uh, do I want her over for tea? No. <laughs> but there was this moment where I recognized, you know what, she is doing the best she knows how with her family. Um, and I do think that uh, even with people with whom we have very strong political and social differences. Social media also um, allows us to understand other people's stories and to, as you were saying, you know, to humanize everyone. And it's actually useful because it takes away that element of fear. You know, when we, when we can't other others, you know, then we begin to find ourselves a little more resourceful and brave about um, trying to think about um, um, connecting um, with a larger percentage of humanity, you know. Again, please don't invite her over, but. <laughs> Thank you guys all for coming out here. I was invited here by my friend Neens, and I was like, what the hell is this? But she usually invites me to good events, so I figure I'd show up. Uh, <laughs> and uh, it actually ended up being re really educational. Thank you guys for your time. I have part commentary and part question. So like Kamoa was saying, when you grew up, 60 people, right? So basically a village raised you. And I believe a lot of that's been lost on our society nowadays. And a lot of that has come because of the labeling. I didn't grow up as an American Hawaiian. And I'm sure, Guy, you didn't grow up as a Japanese American. 
but you are now labeled a Japanese American. And I think a lot of the labeling has separated us as people, uh, as a nation, uh, and, and even somewhat within the Hawaii culture, the Hawaiian culture, the melting pot, the salad, as it was called. Um, there's been a lot of separation due to labeling. My question is, how do we go backward and teach people uh, what it is like to be family, regardless of what your color, your ethnic background, um, who your mom or dad is, how much money you have or don't have. Uh, like Kamoa, I grew up on welfare and food stamps, MedQuest, all that stuff. So how do we go back with having so much media available through social media and all these different outlets? How do we go back and educate not just our children we're raising now, but the adults that lost their way? Um, how, how do we go about doing that, not just as a society, but as individuals? I think Daniel Day Kim already answered this question. It's about exposure. Uh, I think that's the key. Exposure to other cultures and other people. If you just live in your little island, uh, now I'm not referring to Oahu. I mean, if you live in your own like little stovepipe, um, that won't happen. By the way, the person who just asked the question is like world champion surfer, stand-up paddleboarder, bodyboarder. So, you know, like if that... I didn't, I didn't answer his question because that's my cousin. Yeah, so. but... <laughs> He's like the LeBron James of surfing, just yeah. so you know. So, yeah. If you look at Corbett's family history and his descendants, you have one of your answers right there. You know, when you have every ethnicity coming into your family history, you know, you're going to be a lot less likely to make fun of yourself, <laughs> you know, you can, because you're part Portuguese or, or whatever that is. And so, you know, I think progress comes through time, progress comes through dialogue, and... and, and, and the relationships that we all make together inform the future. And so, like, when, when Corbett was talking about his, you know, his ethnic makeup, I just, you know, instead of calling him local, my, uh, local I just call him the future because eventually we're all going to get to this place. Instead of putting it as, as a how do we go back to that place, you know, I, I look forward to it as how, we, how, do, how do we get to that place because labels, ethnic names are just that, names. It's the values that we place on them that we need to change. And so you know, hopefully we get to a point where whatever ethnicity you are, it's not looked at as a way to, to, to hurt somebody or make someone feel less than. So um, I think with every generation, we make progress. And with that, we're going to wrap it up. Thank you. I want to thank Guy Kawasaki, Dr. Maya Satoru Ng, Daniel Day Kim, and a man we heard referred to as Kamoa, his Hawaiian name, Corbett Kalama. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. This has been brought to you by the Smithsonian, Zokola Public Square, and the Daniel K. Inoue Institute. Thank you for being part of this. We really appreciate you coming out. You know what we do in Hawaii when we talk about things and we want to come together? You know, we're going to sing Hawaii Aloha, led by Corbett Kalama. Please join in. And Guy Kawasaki, you know. <laughs> Ilani School, you know. Kainoa, you should come and sing this.